0: Alright everyone, I hope you bear with me as I go through several episodes today because uh, I'm a little behind in uh, keeping up with recording some of this material. I have a civil procedure to take care of, I have a criminal law to take care of, and I also have a couple of days of torts to take care of, and then later today I'll need to do a little recording of our last lecture of torts for the week and so there's going to be a variety of episodes coming out probably between five and ten i'm not 100 sure yet but with that said let's actually go ahead and jump into civil procedure civil procedure if you recall from what we've been talking about so far we've talked about diversity jurisdiction so In order for a court to hear a case, there needs to be subject matter jurisdiction Well, and that pertains to if it's in a federal court. So if you're in a federal court, you need to have subject matter jurisdiction. Underneath subject matter jurisdiction, you have federal question jurisdiction, and you have diversity jurisdiction. We've been focusing recently on diversity jurisdiction, and diversity jurisdiction has two requirements. First, there needs to be complete diversity, which is what we focused on last time. And second, there needs to be an amount in controversy, meaning the amount in dispute, the monetary amount, the damages that the party is asking for, exceeds a certain number. Right now, according to 1332A, that number is set at $75,000 and really one cent uh, because it needs to exceed $75,000. So if it lands on $75,000, It's no good. So it needs to exceed $75,000 in order for diversity jurisdiction to hear a case. And once again, remember that these are all state claims. So let's actually talk about amounts in controversy more in depth. We have a couple big takeaways that I want to note. First of all, when you're trying to determine the amount of controversy there's pretty much two stages during stage one you can say that there's pre-trial and then stage two would be during trial stage one you're going to assume that the amount of controversy has been met it's going to be up to the defendant to say no we can't tear this in a federal court because they the damages that they're saying that they have does not exceed $75,000, and the plaintiff in, in that case is going to say, yes, we do exceed $75,000, and so this can be heard in a federal court. At least that's really what happens during the pretrial during trial, it's that burden shifts to the plaintiff to say, yes, we actually did meet this $75,000, and we we have to prove it. So pre-trial, defendants have to prove that they don't meet it. During trial, the plaintiffs have to prove that they did meet it. The interesting thing to note here, though, is that this is actually quite often reversed in actual practice, and that is because plaintiffs would prefer to be in state court and defendants would prefer to most typically be in federal court. And so a lot of the time when it actually is in this pretrial stage, they're, they're trying to swap roles to where the defendant's saying, yes, they, they can meet that $75,000, and the plaintiffs are like, no, 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 we, we, we don't have that as many damages. And then once it actually gets to trial, those, those swap where the defendants say, no, their, their damages are zero. They can't get anything. And then the plaintiffs are like, yeah, we, we, we far exceeded the $75,000. Because at that point, that's after the courts have determined whether or not they're a subject matter jurisdiction. Okay, we have a case that actually outlines this and pretty well. is Defenthal versus CAB, what happened in this case is that the plaintiffs had purchased a first-class smoking ticket in airplanes. This is back when airplanes allowed smoking. So they had purchased a first-class smoking ticket, but when they arrived at the airport, their ticket person, uh, the flight attendant, said no, and they said it brusquely mind you. uh, They said brusquely that we don't have any first class smoking seats left. You're going to have to go and sit in first class non-smoking. So the parties were angry. They said that the company had breached their contract and caused them to suffer extreme humiliation and embarrassment in front of the other passengers. And so in their controversy claim, they Demanded fifty thousand dollars in damages no at this time the mounting controversy requirement was set at ten thousand dollars so they had claimed fifty thousand dollars. however, the court said there's no way that it's even possible to a legal certainty that you even reach the ten thousand requirement and how can you prove this so what kind of things do you show for damages well here in this case, the they could say the breach of contract. It was probably let's let's be generous. Back in that time, a hundred dollars was a lot more money than it is now. A smoking ticket versus a non smoking ticket. A hundred dollars makes about sense. So they would have a hundred dollars in damages there and then maybe you can say that you want to attribute some damages to their injuries that they had occurred uh, of embarrassment. But can you honestly say without any further evidence that those two things are going to exceed $10,000, let alone the $50,000? The attorney and the plaintiffs here obviously thought that they had reached the $50,000 mark because that's what they asked for. They said that it was in good faith. However, because... To a legal certainty, that's the test, to a legal certainty, the amount of controversy is not met. So what what's our test? So from this case and from another case, St. Paul Mercy Indemnity Co. versus Red Cap Co. Our test is that if the claim is made on good faith, the plaintiff's claim is made on good faith. then we're going to have the amount of controversy met unless if there is a lack of legal certainty. So, well, unless if there is legal certainty that it is not met. So, good faith plus the lack of legal certainty is going to equal the amount of controversy met. Good faith without the legal certainty, or rather with, Legal certainty that it's not met is going to rec- it is going to result in it not being met. Probably didn't say that very well, but that's the test. As far as how you can add damages together, this is called aggregate claims. Uh, these are. The rules are kind of a little bit arbitrary. They don't make as intuitive sense, but we do have a couple of rules. What this is just saying is that you can combine several claims together under a case to actually figure out the damages that is in dispute for the amount of controversy requirement. So the basic rule is that the plaintiff or several plaintiffs can combine... Against one defendant to reach the amount of controversy, so for example, when the requirement is set at seventy five thousand dollars, a plaintiff can claim a breach of contract for forty thousand dollars and a fraud claim for another forty thousand dollars, and they would reach the requirement, even though those two claims aren't related because that's eighty thousand dollars that isn't that exceeds the amount. It's one plaintiff against one defendant. However, there are some times when this doesn't work. So, for example, it doesn't work if two plaintiffs go against one defendant and neither plaintiff on their own meets the amount of controversy requirement. So, for example, if plaintiff A has a claim of $60,000 and plaintiff B has a claim of $60,000 against defendant A, that's not going to work because neither Plaintiff A or B reaches the seventy-five on their own. Likewise, if Plaintiff A has a claim of $60,000 against Defendant A and another claim against Defendant B for $60,000, that's not going to work. You can't just group them together and claim the $120,000 against both and get into federal court. No, it needs to be against one defendant, And the plaintiff, on its own, needs to exceed that $75,000 limit. Okay, so just going over a couple of rules. A single plaintiff can aggregate claims into a single defendant. A single plaintiff cannot aggregate claims against several defendants even when the claims are related. Multiple plaintiffs can... Aggregate claims against a single defendant if one of the plaintiffs meets the requirement through supplemental jurisdiction. So that's if plaintiff A has $75,000 and one, well, $75,001, and and plaintiff B has only $30,000 against defendant A. Well, plaintiff B can join and aggregate that claim with plaintiff A because Plaintiff A has met the mounting controversy requirement, and that'll happen through 1367, which we will talk about in the next episode. Finally, biggest well last rule is going to be that multiple plaintiffs cannot aggregate claims against a single defendant if neither could state a claim alone, even if those claims are related. And that is... The amounting controversy requirement. I kind of went a little longer than I wanted on that, but there you have it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is, if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro, and you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com/join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is, if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.